0: 2 Samuel chapter 19. This is going to be a rather uh, interesting passage for us today because it's going to deal with um, let's just say it this way conflict within God within or among God's people. Yep. If you remember, David and his men had just recently put down the rebellion of David's son Absalom who had been um, trying to take over the kingdom. Remember, David had welcomed Absalom back. He had offered him mercy. If you remember, the Lord took his life. And so we had that tension, as we talked about last week, between God's judgment and the uh, mercy and compassion that he feels. And we saw how that reflected Christ, how... God has to judge, but he's not always happy about it because he wants to have mercy. And so there's this this tension that we sort of see. And so that kind of all got resolved last week. And so you would expect that at this time, it's time to reunite the country. It should be a time of celebration. It should be a, a time of finally saying, okay, that's now behind us. However, it apparently wasn't an easy task, as we're going to learn in our passage This morning, there are always those who are going to be intent on division and disharmony among God's people. Unfortunately, that's the truth. There are always those who are going to be insubordinate and self-willed. We're going to see that today. However, there's always good news, and that's that there are always those who remain faithful, and God always accomplishes his purpose in spite of those things. So we're going to see that today. Let's go ahead and look at the first... uh, Oh, three or four of our verses today. We're in Second um, Samuel chapter 19. We're going to read verses 40 through 43. Second Samuel chapter 19, starting at verse 40. Now the king went to Gilgal, and Chim- Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. This is the king basically going back now to Jerusalem. And behold, all of the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? But all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us, why then are you angry about this matter? Have you eaten all the king's, or um, have we eaten at the king's expense? Or has anything been taken from us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have ten parts in the king, therefore we also have more claim on, the, on David than you do. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. There's always going to be tension. There's always going to be division and disharmony. We see that among God's people throughout the Old Testament. We even see that sometimes within the church, and we'll kind of address that here shortly. Let's take a look at what this is telling us here. The people of Israel, the northern ten tribes, became upset because the southern two tribes, which is referred to as Judah, had accompanied David back across the Jordan. If you remember that, after Absalom had tried to take the kingdom from David and, and, and that, you had the northern ten tribes go with him, and you had the... The, the southern tribes kind of stay with David to some degree. And um, after all that's kind of put down, the um, northern tribes ask, why don't we go bring it all back together, make David our, our king. They are the ones that sort of introduce it and, and, and whatnot. And um, so at some point what happens is Judah kind of rushes in and takes David and they accompany David across the river to bring him back into Jerusalem. And the northern 10 tribes get upset about that, and that's what we see here. They had brought two accusations against Judah. The first accusation was that they had stolen David away. The indication there is that Judah had covertly or secretly kind of come in, whisked David across the river, deliberately excluded Israel from the process, possibly in an attempt to secure David's favor is what the northern tribes were saying. The second accusation that they had against Judah was that they were treating the northern tribes with contempt. The stem here in the Hebrew word that's used refers to uh, Judah's actions causing Israel to become accursed or have little worth to David. In other words, what what Israel is saying is that, um, Judah, by doing what you did, we now look bad in David's eyes. You've made us look horrible. Now, what's interesting about that, you guys have heard about this friend of ours, David Baton. He's a friend from back home. Um, I met him through Steve Schmeckle. He and Steve Schmeckle, they were almost brothers or cousins, if you will, growing up. And so I met Dave through Steve, and um, we've been close ever since then. He still lives near Green Bay, about 30 minutes away. Um, He works in Green Bay, but he takes care of mom for us. He stops by all the time. He treats her like his own mother. And so he'll come by now during this COVID stuff, not so much. But prior to this, he would come by once a week or once every other week and take mom out for pizza. He comes over and fix his stuff. He was over there doing some plumbing for her the other day. Um, he does electric. I mean, just, he does everything. And so my brother and I have always teased each other about being the favorite son. Until a few months ago, I started finally saying to my brother, We've both lost because Dave is mom's favorite son. And so now the running joke is that David and I fight for spot number two and spot number three. And what's even funnier about that is when Dave reprogrammed, my brother's David. his name is David, but when Dave Baton reprogrammed my mom's um, garage door opener, apparently he used his own birth date. And so now Dave is even on, or in with the joke, too, and he kind of even admits that, hey, you guys, are, I'm your mom's favorite. So David and I, we, we do this all the time, about who's favorite. In fact, we had a Zoom call the other day on Thanksgiving, and my brother actually, um, unbeknownst to the rest of us, my mom was spending Thanksgiving all by herself. And so my brother called into Green Bay and ordered her food from a very fancy restaurant, a real nice restaurant, and then told her, hey, you can go pick up your food. And so that came up on the Zoom call and my sister Joni said something about, "Uh uh-oh, David now temporarily got that favorite sunspot. But then the rest of us kind of joked that, you know, we are so far behind Dave Baton. And so I jokingly just said, no, what you guys don't realize is that Dave Baton's going to come over and eat the meal with my mom on Thanksgiving because he's ultimately the favorite son. And so David still lost out by buying her food. But that's kind of almost what you see here is there's this rivalry, if you will, of sorts between the northern ten tribes and the two southern tribes, and they're now sort of bickering over who's going to be the favorite among David because of what Judah had done. Judah defended their actions by suggesting that, well, we have a position of privilege with David. He's, he's our relative, is what they claim. But they also denied that they didn't do anything wrong. Israel were then responded by citing their numerical support superiority. Well, there's ten tribes of us, There's only two of you, so we should have been the ones that ultimately brought David over. Plus, I'm sorry, it was Israel who actually claimed that it was their idea to bring, it wasn't Judah's idea, it was Israel's idea to bring David back across. And so what you have are these these tribes basically, at a time where there should have been celebration, bringing the country back together, celebrating David as their king, should have been a good thing, but now they're bickering and they're fighting. They're not happy about it. They've all got their own agendas. They're more interested in causing division and disharmony instead of unifying. Now, there was one particular individual that took advantage of these divisions. His name was Sheba. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Now, a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri a Benjamite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor, nor do we have any inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew, that's the northern ten tribes, from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king, from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Let's talk about this guy Sheba for a second. He was actually a Benjamite, which means you would normally find him with the southern two tribes. That's his heritage. That's his lineage. But he apparently lived up in the northern part with the ten tribes. He aligned himself with Israel. So he was a Benjamite, would have been a relative of David's, but he made his home up in northern Israel. He was a soldier, and he served apparently in the army, the suggestion of his blow, him blowing his trumpet and His ability to persuade the men of Israel, the soldiers to leave with him, suggests that he was a military man. Most importantly, however, look at what he's referred to as. A worthless fellow. When the Bible calls you a worthless fellow, that's not a good thing. It's literally, the the phrase is literally, he's a man of worthlessness. There is no value in him. That's what the text says. The word refers to being just what we think here, worthless, having no value. Some of your translations may actually refer to him using the phrase Satan or the son of Belial. And it's because that word is used outside of the Old Testament to refer to Satan. Paul uses the word Belial in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And it, and it does sort of refer to him here as the son of Belial. But the question that we have to ask is, is it referring to him as the son of the enemy, Belial? Or is it simply the word word worthless? Because that's primarily the way the, the, the phrase is used in the Old Testament. It's probably that. Some translations will make an issue out of He's the son of Belial. He's the son of Satan. But that's an overstatement because it's not used that way anywhere else in the Old Testament. And They kind of rely on the use in the New Testament to claim that's what it was. But really, the word is used overwhelmingly in the Old Testament as simply being worthless. Probably the best way to think of it here is by the idiom that we often hear here. Maybe maybe not so much now, but back in my dad's day, he was a good for nothing. You guys familiar with that phrase at all? We don't you guys ever use that with your friends? You're just a good for No, we don't. You guys use other phrases, right? I won't ask you what they are. But um, just a, a good for nothing. He's one of those and you know what those people are like, right? They kind of show up and they're just they're troublemakers. You know They're not interested in helping or healing or building peace or making bridges. They're a scoundrel. They're troublemakers. And that's exactly the way that he is described. Now we actually see his worthlessness here, if you will. He takes advantage of the divisions and the disharmony here. He sounds his trumpet, which actually is a call to retreat. He basically says, guys, we're leaving now. Blows his trumpet, calls on the northern Israel army to leave with him. He claims that David's loyalty is only with Judah. In other words, this is an attack on David himself. He says, "We have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse." What he's actually saying is that David has no interest in us. We have no we have no value in David. There's there's nothing we can find in him. He doesn't care about us. In fact, the same exact phrase is used. Um, After um, the kingdom starts to split with Solomon, when you have um, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and you have the son Isbosheth, which is one of King Saul's sons, and he tries to take the northern tribes and basically usurp the authority of the king. And they say the same thing when they leave with him. The king, the real king in the day had nothing to do with us. He doesn't care about us. And that's exactly what they're saying here by saying, we have no portion, David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He doesn't care about us. That's often a trick used, isn't it? Oh, they don't care about you. You're trying to win somebody to your side. And you want to look at your enemy, if you will. You make accusations about them. They're not interested in you. They don't care about us. Only I care about you. Remember, that's what Absalom did, right? When he went to the the gates. He went down to the gates and stood there. That's where the king is supposed to go, and his people came in to get counsel from the king. Absalom, real wise, said, I'll go to the gate, and when they come, I'll say, David really doesn't care about you. But I do. I'm here for you. David, if he cared, he would be down here. That's exactly what Sheba's doing here. He was worthless, troublemaker, a scoundrel. It should have been a time of rejoicing. It should have been a time of celebration, bringing God's people back together. But instead, it led to disharmony and division over these petty emotions, these selfish desires. Oh, you took David across. You didn't invite us to come with you. You must have some ulterior motives with that. No, they were just excited. David was a relative. They were excited to bring the kingdom back together. But the northern ten tribes didn't see it that way. You know, what's interesting about this is this kind of reminds me a bit of what we see happening in the church at Corinth. Remember when we studied that? That was a church in total disarray. give you some examples. They fought over who their favorite apostles were. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Paul had to address that. They were stacking up leaders, you know, and making one better than the other. And so they had their little factions within the church. They were suing one another. Chapter 6. They were taking advantage of one another by abusing their liberties. That's chapter 8. They were abusing the love feast. They would come together to, to eat and they would all, instead of eating at home, come and just gorge themselves, be the first in line. And as a result, some of those who desperately needed it, maybe the widows and the orphans and others that didn't quite have as much, didn't get theirs. We find out chapters 11, 12, or I'm sorry, 12, 13, and 14 that they were abusing their spiritual gifts favoring some over others. Oh, the person that does this and has this amazing gift is much more valuable than, oh, you just, you've just you got the gift of helps. So you're not quite as important as the others. All of this led to a highly dysfunctional and disjointed church. Maybe this is why the Bible warns us about causing divisions and calls on us to strive for unity, because this kind of stuff exists. It existed in, in Israel. even kind of happens in the church. Churches oftentimes can be fairly dysfunctional. You know, we're not perfect, right? And unfortunately, it leads to divisions and conflict sometimes. Which again is why I think the Bible calls on us, commands us to search for unity among one another. Look at Romans chapter 16 with me. Romans chapter 16 verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Paul's writing to the church here. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. And hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Paul's warning here, this is one of the last things he says in his letter to the, to the Roman churches here is be careful with those who like to cause dissensions within. The church, how about Titus chapter 3? We're going to jump around a little bit here. One of the last letters Paul wrote. He wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy and then Titus shortly before his death. But Titus chapter 3, jump down to verse 9 with me. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes, in this case about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It's talking here about an individual who might come into the church and try to cause divisions. And in this case, probably over theological matters. Now, it doesn't mean theology is not important. Theology and doctrine are, are critical. But there are some who come in specifically to cause division and... We're told to reject the factious man who does that, somebody who causes factions or divisions. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 3. Let's, let's actually just start in verse 1. It'll be a little bit easier. Therefore, uh, um, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Okay? In other words, act like a Christian. Walk like a believer. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Where was the tolerance between the northern tribes and the southern tribes? There wasn't any there. Where was the gentleness? There wasn't any there. In love, being diligent, what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Where was the desire to retain the unity of Israel under the king that God had selected? It was gone. They had their own agendas. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. Why would Paul feel the need in the book of Ephesians to tell the church use humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another, be diligent to preserve unity? If there wasn't going to be an issue with churches and division and disunity, why would Paul command them to seek it? Because it exists, right? Right? Because it's there. One last one. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, down to verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, in other words, as born again believers in Christ, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, bearing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Another call to unity. The New Testament is filled with commands like this. In fact, Jesus, my my daughter Katie, and I were, were going through part of um Matthew's Gospel, they had to the be attitudes, and one of them was, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, think of it this way. The church is just like one giant family. And how do siblings get along? Do they always get along? Sometimes they can be the best of friends. Sometimes they can be almost the worst of enemies. But even good families sometimes you have that conflict in this right. I remember growing up we had four kids in our family. I was the second oldest, my oldest sister Jeannie, me, then my brother or my sister Joni and then my brother David. And we didn't always get along. And I remember a time where My dad was so frustrated with the fact that we were not getting along and we were always fighting. You know, you get in the car and we all sat, we had our assigned seats in the car, you know. And it's just like, you're touching me, get off, just don't, you're over my line, you're crossing the line. You know, all that little, my dad was so frustrated that he finally said, you know what, that's it. No friends. And he forbid us from seeing our friends. The only people we could play with was our siblings. That radically, I think, changed our relationship. We learned to get along, believe it or not. We are still, to this day... Now, he finally let us play other friends again. When I went away to college, I chose the college because my sister went to college there. I wanted to do computer science. I knew they had a computer science program, but I didn't look at any other school. I'm going to O'Claire, where my sister is. That's all I want. When I got there, um, I made all my friends, and my sister always came with us, we would go out dancing at some of the clubs and some of that stuff, you know. She met her um, former husband, partially through me because he was a friend of mine, actually a guy I lived with. She hung out with us all the time. My family, our siblings, we are still like this. We text every single day, all of us as a group, every day. We still go back to Green Bay every other year. All the kids, the family, everybody comes together. Every other year, still. I'm shocked at that because it requires quite a bit, you know, coordinating schedules and all that kind of stuff, you know. But my dad had to deal with it because we weren't getting along. That's kind of the way families are. And so I think the first takeaway that we have from this is we look at what's happening with Israel. Um, God's, God's church is not perfect in the sense that we don't always get along, and there will be times like this where there's division. Think about what's happening right now. This is, I think, a key moment for the church as we think about what's happening in our culture and society around us. Many that I know that, that deal with the whole social environment um, when it comes to the social media stuff have made claims about the amount of vitriol being expressed from one Christian to another Christian because we disagree about whether we should wear masks or not or whether we disagree about our politics or we disagree about this or that. There, There's... And, I, and I've seen that even with, with even Christians I know where there's this tension. And I'm thinking, wow, that can tear us apart pretty easily. A friend of mine one time told me that um, their church split over color of carpeting. The color of carpeting. What, the, what, what is wrong with that? That's just, what drives that? Selfish ambitions and motives. Do you think, Maybe Satan might be behind that? That's all right. You're all right. He wants nothing more than to split us up, to divide us. I'm convinced that more churches split or fight over non-theological issues than theological issues. Non-doctrinal issues than doctrine. It's over personality conflicts and, and other things just like family members sometimes do. Now, there is good news coming, folks, so we'll hang on to that. I don't want to paint a bad picture, but like I said, the New Testament warns us, pursue that unity, pursue the peace, be gentle, be gracious, be kind, pursue unity. Partly what drives this is our second point from this morning, and that's that there are always those among God's people who are insubordinate and have their own agenda, and oftentimes they're the ones that drive this kind of stuff. And it's because they're insubordinate and they have their own agenda. Look at chapter 20, verse 4. David recognized the threat that Sheba had now posed. So he called a guy by the name of Amasa, he was the commander of his army to ready the troops and to pursue Sheba before they could escape. Look at verse 4. He says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call all the men of Judah for me within three days and present yourself here. In other words, he's getting ready. He knows that Sheba, this factious man, is going to destroy Israel now. They had already suffered the split that came about because of Absalom and now this... You know, when things should be getting back together, another man raises up who wants to divide Israel, and David recognizes that as a threat. Remember the New Testament says, reject the factious man? That's kind of this. David's going to go after this. He's going to tackle this. So he gathers his, his men with, with his commander, Amasa, and he says, prepare. But something happens. Amasa takes a little bit too long, and so David assigns the ta- or the task to another man, another commander, Abishai, He's the brother of Joab. Joab is his former commander. Joab apparently had fallen out of favor with David here for some reason. And so David, because Amasa takes a little bit long, David assigns a task to Abishai. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 20. So Amasa went to call the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the time which he had been appointed. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So David had apparently lost faith with Joab, his commander, and so he tries to task Amasa with it, but Amasa takes way too long, doesn't fulfill the obligation in the timetable David gave him. So David basically kind of replaces Joab, first with Amasa and then with Abishai. Now, here's where where the self-will and the insubordination comes into play. Joab wasn't happy about it. Joab had been David's primary commander. He's not very happy with this selection. Yeah, surprise, surprise. And he essentially now takes over the campaign. Now, remember, David's a king. He gets to assign the military commander. He gets to call the shots. Joab says, yeah, I'm going to do it. Look at verses 7 through 12. So Joab's men went out after him along with the Chetherites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at a large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire. Now I think it's interesting that that's mentioned because David did not give him the position of serving as his military commander. I think the author here is telling us he'd be a little deceptive here. He put on his military attire so that the other guys would think David had sent him. He's the one in command. Which, think about it. They'd seen Joab that way before because he was. It's almost like um, being fired from a job at McDonald's. You're supposed to turn in your uniform, but you don't. You show up the next day wearing it anyway. Let's just pretend it's all the same. Your crew workers, unless they knew you were fired, wouldn't have any clue, right? So they welcome you in, they let you go back and start flipping burgers. That's exactly what he does here. So when they were at this large stone, Gideon Amasa came to meet them, and Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword, and his sheath fastened to its waist, and he went forward, it fell out. In other words, the, the sword kind of fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard, and with his right hand, to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which is in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it, and he poured out his inward parts on the ground, and he did not strike him again. In other words, only took him one, one stab, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so basically what... Oh, wait, let me finish the reading here. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men, and he said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the men saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by stood still. So basically what happens here is Joab isn't happy with the selection of Amasa, so he decides to take matters into his own hand. He thinks he can do a better job. So based on his own will and his own agenda, he basically goes and he kills Amasa. Deceives him, puts on his military uniform. How you doing, buddy? How are things going with you? He goes over and he reaches around to give him a hug. And he takes that sword and just sticks it in him. That's Joab. We're going to learn what kind of man Joab is in a later passage, but he wasn't a good man. And so basically, he takes over this campaign. He says, all of you that want to follow David, I'm his guy, follow me. But it wasn't about David's agenda, it was about his own agenda. But he tries to convince the people that he's David's man and he's now going to lead this campaign. What was wrong with Joab? Well, Joab was a good soldier. He's an excellent military commander. He did an awful lot of good for David and for Israel commanded a lot of victories against overwhelming odds. So he was good at, at his job, but he wasn't a good man. In fact, he was wicked, self-willed, constantly ignored the will of King David. He always seemed to have his own agenda. In a word, he was insubordinate. It means he rejected authority. He just kind of did his own thing. I don't know if you remember the story of Abner... He murdered Abner out of revenge against David's wishes. If The way the story basically worked is Abner had sided with King Saul. And um, so in some respects, was an enemy of David. But David ultimately forgave him and sent him away in peace. Well, Joab wasn't happy with that. And so Joab basically goes out and kills him. Again, David sent him away in peace. But Joab thought, I'm having have nothing of that. We're getting some revenge here. He also murdered David's son Absalom. Remember that? David said, don't don't do anything with my son Absalom. And so when when they finally when Absalom got his hair caught up in the tree, and he's hanging there, and the other soldiers saw him and said, oh, we're not going to touch him. And Joab basically comes along and says, why not? Kills him. Completely against David's wishes. Why? Because Joab had his own agenda. In our passage today, he commits murder against Amasa. That's clearly against David's wishes. We see one more incidence in the scriptures where Joab directly opposes David's will by disregarding Solomon as king. David says, Solomon, my son, is going to be king. Joab's not happy about it. So he sides with David's other son, Adonijah, or Adonijah, and tries to usurp the, um, the throne from Solomon. Everything we see about Joab in the scriptures is that he was self-willed and insubordinate. But in some respects, he was a good guy to have around if you wanted a good military commander. So, a good military commander, lousy character, wicked man. David likely kept him around primarily for that reason. David might have even been afraid to not sort of keep him around because you got a man like that. He's always going to take matters into his own hands, isn't he? That's the kind of man that he was. In fact, we learn in 1 Kings chapter 1, that ultimately Solomon deals with him because David asked him to. So Joab gets his payback, if you will, or gets paid back. He paid the full price for his insubordination and his disloyalty. Do you think we ever see this sort of thing in the church? The Bible warns us about self-willed leaders, self-willed people within the church that reject authority. They just kind of do their own thing. They're unwilling to submit to leadership or submit... To one another, Titus chapter one verse seven says about overseers, they must be above reproach as God's steward. But then it says and not self-willed, which means leaders in God's church are supposed to be subordinate to Christ, but not only to Christ, to the church family. Paul is very careful about the way that he describes to the Ephesian elders in Ephesians in um, Acts chapter 20 about their role as shepherding. There's a reason why the scriptures describe an elder's role as that of a shepherd and not an overlord, not a king, not a ruler, because that's not a way a shepherd behaves and acts. Titus chapter one verse 10 also says, "For there are many who are insubordinate; they are empty talkers." And they're deceivers, especially those who are of. In this case, he says the circumcised party, which is the religious leaders on the Jewish side. He says they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching shameful things that are for shameful, or teaching teaching things that are for shameful gain, things that they ought not teach. Paul describes some of the leaders in his day as, and this is from within the church. These men are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. It's directly the opposite of what we see demonstrated in Christ. I want you just to think for a moment. There are always people within the family that you kind of know. They're just sort of self-willed. They always want their way. They're more interested in what serves them than what it serves the body. And it can sometimes be teachers and pastors, leaders. Sometimes it can just be people within the church that you just kind of know. Yeah, it's always kind of about them. There was a elder board I was on one time where there was one man on the elder board who always voted no. No matter what the issue was. Always voted no. And there were times where his no vote was the only vote that was no. So finally, one day, I asked him, "How come you always vote no?" And he said, "That's my job. My job is to just say no to everything. I'm like why to hold them accountable." He was a he was a very self righteous man, but he saw his job in that church. As being the guy that protected that church from the elder board making bad decisions, even if the elder board was making good decisions. It was still a no. He was the no guy. He should have got him a shirt. The answer is no. That bothered me because I thought, really? That's your job to, to, to be the no, no matter what it is. To be the one to stand up. He kind of had an overinflated sense of importance. You know? So, there's people kind of like Joab sometimes that are in the church. Sometimes they're the leaders. Sometimes they're just the people in the church. You can sometimes see that when issues come up and churches have to make decisions as a body. And you get some that you know just really want what's ever in the best interest of the church. And they're willing to say, you know what? I think we ought to do this, but you know what? I'll do what we can. You know? Let's just be good as a family, let's be good as a body. And then you always get those that are just there. There's no way you're going to be able to convince them to do anything, because if they don't get their way, they won't leave. They'll still stick around and try to get the church to bend to their will. That happens. The Bible also warns believers about insubordination by calling on us to develop a submissive spirit as believers. James chapter 4, verse 7, says we're to submit to God. It's a submissive spirit. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us we're to submit to leadership. That's a submissive spirit. First Peter chapter 2 tells us we're to submit to governing authorities in our culture and our society. And then Ephesians chapter 5 says that we're ultimately to submit to one another. It's interesting the number of times this concept of having a submissive, gentle spirit comes up in the scripture. That doesn't describe Joab. certainly doesn't, does it? He just was more interested. He not going to obey David, the king. He's going to obey his own self-will and self-direction. That's what causes so many divisions. It causes divisions in the family. It causes divisions between husbands and wives. It causes divisions at work when people refuse to have a gentle, peaceful, submissive spirit. What does the scripture say we're supposed to value others above ourselves? Isn't that the way that it's supposed to work? That's kind of the picture that we get here. This should have been a time of celebration, bringing the family back together. Israel's back together. We've got our king. Let's move forward. But no, let's bicker and let's fight. So there's always going to be those who cause division and disharmony among God's people. There's always going to be those who are insubordinate and self-willed within the local church. There's good news that in spite of that, there are always going to be those who do the right thing, those who are faithful to him, and God will ultimately still accomplish his purpose. In spite of the challenges, God does not see the hurdles as anything too big to go over, right? So what happens here? There's two examples. If you look at verses 13 through 22... There's, first of all, the men of Judah, who I think are, the, are a better example here because there is a contrast between the northern ten tribes and their behavior and Judah's behavior because we're told on a couple of different occasions that they remained faithful to David. Look at um, chapter 20, verse 2, real quick again. Just jump up there. I deliberately skipped this. But look at the second half of verse 2. It says, But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. In other words, unlike the northern ten tribes, they remained steadfast. Unlike Sheba, they remained steadfast. Unlike Joab, they were steadfast. So that's the first example. The second example of this idea of faithfulness or steadfastness, doing what the king expects, is this unnamed woman from the city of Abel Beth makkah Look at verses 13 through 15. As soon as he was removed from the highway, the Amasa, his body, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Beth Makah, and all of the uh, Barites, and they gathered together there, also, all, I'm sorry, and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel Beth Makah, that's. Where, um, where he had fled. They came to the city, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. This is rather striking. Instead of going and knocking on the door and saying, hey, you guys have somebody we need, send them out. He just immediately gets to this city. It's basically an innocent city out in the middle of nowhere and sets up a siege ramp, a military campaign against it, and his soldiers start beating down the wall and they're just attacking the city. It's not a military city. That just happens to be where Bitriad had fled to. And um, So anyway, they build this, this ramp around it and he starts to attack the city. And it says in verse 16, that a wise woman called from the city, Hear, hear, please tell Joab, come here, that I may speak with you. Just some random woman. We're not told who she is. So he approached her. She's up on the wall. And the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus, they ended the dispute. In other words, she's saying, Look, we're we're a very wise city. People come to us to get situations resolved. They seek counsel here. We're we're a good, faithful city. Verse 19, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. I'm a good Jew. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. You're, at the, you're building a wall. You're trying to destroy the city. Oh, no, not me. Nothing to see here. Ramp hiding behind him. You know, holding his cloak out so she can't see it, right? Verse 21, Such is not the case. But a man from the hill county of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bitri, by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. So what what happens here? Then the woman wisely came to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw threw it over to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they were dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. So this wise woman, really interesting, is she comes out as the most reasonable one here. Now you say, cut off his head. Well, he was. David did send out orders to capture him, bring him back. Um, the city's under attack. But I love the number of things that she says. She talks about being faithful herself. Talks about how the city is a good city. It's faithful. People come there to get good counsel. And here you have this man, Joab, trying to attack this city. She was a good person in this case. She's described that way. She's described as wise, understanding, faithful. And she ends up saving the city. One of the things the Lord reminded Israel of over and over in the Old Testament is that in spite of the rampant unfaithfulness, there would always be a remnant that would remain faithful to him. That's what she represents here. In fact, when Paul was referring to Israel in Romans 11, he states that even now there's a remnant that God will ultimately save in Israel. So what do we actually take away with all of this? There's some concluding thoughts that I have. One is that in spite of all the unfaithfulness that we see in this passage, God ultimately still accomplishes his purpose, doesn't he? Takes down this person who's going to cause division. Israel will be unified under David. So in spite of... Joab being insubordinate. God even uses Joab in this case. Now, he could have used Amasa, right? Didn't have to use Joab. And we got to this a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, where we said even God uses even wicked people sometimes. But God still accomplished his purpose here by bringing Israel back together. So that, I think, is a thing for us to remember is that God still will always fulfill his plan, even with the church and even with us. Another thought is that there's always going to be conflict within the church, just like there was Israel. There's going to be conflict within local churches. There's always going to be those who cause it to struggle. There's going to be those who are more interested in their own agenda. We see that, don't we? We see all kinds of stuff happen in the church sometimes, churches that have their own agendas, and sometimes churches clearly have God's agenda in mind. And you can see it. And individuals sometimes, you know they've got God's interest in mind, and then there's other times where you kind of go, nah, he's a... Wolf in sheep's clothing. We see that, right? So we're going to see that. God never promised a perfect church. What did somebody say one time? That if you find a perfect church, don't join it because it will no longer be perfect. (laughs) that John (laughs) Hagee? Said that. So we can't expect our churches to be perfect. We should expect tension and disagreement sometimes. It's not going to be Perfect. Until Christ takes us all home, then the church will be perfect. Third thought is that in spite of all of this, the growing unfaithfulness, rebelliousness, self-willed leaders, their own agendas, false teaching, God, will accomplish his purpose and his plan for the church. We're sure of that. We know the end of the story, don't we? God will do it. One of the commentators that I looked at for this passage um, said this, Sheba's defeat, meaning his death, should give us hope. Despite the conflict and the treachery, God's kingdom through David was still I'm sorry despite the conflict and treachery, God's kingdom through David was preserved. So we can have hope that God's kingdom through David's greater son, Jesus Christ, will persevere as well in spite of the threats that it faces. Isn't that true? And we see that here. There is this threat. After Absalom, when you think it's resolved, there's another threat to tear apart the kingdom. Guy that wants to rise up and take advantage, he sees the division with the ten tribes and the two tribes, and he says, I can take advantage of this. Maybe I can be a leader here. I'll take all of Israel and go. And so he blows the trumpet like a commander and says, Come with me! David doesn't care about you. We'll start our own kingdom. And God says, no, we're not going to have anything to do with that. And so God still accomplishes purpose there. So the primary question I want to pose for us today is you think about yourself, and I'm pretty confident here with most of you, so it's not a trick question. Which side are you on? When you think of your place and your purpose within God's family, have your own agenda, or is it God's agenda? Unfortunately, I think, especially in our culture today, so oftentimes, when you look at the church body as a whole, many are simply there because of what they get. And if they don't get what they like or what they want, then it's go somewhere else, or they get upset, or they get angry instead of saying, man, I'm a part of a body of Christ. This is all about God's agenda. This is all about God's purpose. What God wants. Not a Joab. Not like the northern ten tribes. Always thinking about their own interests or self-interest. I personally don't think enough Christians ask this when they face conflict with other believers. Because more often than not, what we're interested in when we have that division or the conflict with another believer... Is we're more interested in convincing them or having our way or changing their minds instead of finding a way to come to peace and have unity so that we can together then accomplish